0: you can take your Bibles. And we are turning to a new book of the Bible this morning. We finished our series in James last week. Dave had an excellent message on what it looks like to pray in response to all of the practicalities that we saw in that letter. And this morning we're starting a new series, and that series is called Mighty Mercy, and it's in the book of Jonah. So, you can turn with me to the Old Testament. Jonah is a minor prophet, and that doesn't mean Jonah is not important. It doesn't mean there's not theologically significant things happening in the book of Jonah. It just means that it's short. It's shorter than Isaiah and Jeremiah. So if you're having trouble finding it, it's on page 935 in my Bible, which doesn't help you. If you look in your Bibles in the Old Testament, it's going to be after the book of Amos and Obadiah. So you can kind of find your way through there, right before the book of Micah. So that's the location of Jonah. It's only four chapters, so it's pretty small. You have to go to your table of contents if you're not familiar. Find your location there. Before we begin, let me just start with a word of prayer. Father, we want to come to your word. And this morning we are looking At an old, ancient, gospel foreshadowing part of Your Word. And we want to hear from You. In the same way that Jonah heard from You. This Word is inspired. It is an air and it carries the full authority of You, our sovereign God. And I pray, Lord, that You would make us attentive. That You would attune our hearts to the message of this book. Specifically, God, this morning, that you would help us to see the mighty nature of your mercy, the depths of your compassion. And with that, that we would see the mission that beats in your heart. The mission to glorify your name, to glorify the name of Jesus by drawing together from every people and tribe and nation and tongue a people for your own possession to save them. And you have, God, an evangelistic missionary heart. And we want to see that in the book of Jonah. So help us. Give us glimpses of your weighty mercy. Give us glimpses of the massive commitment you have to your mission. And the calling you give to us as your people to take our place in that mission. Do all this for your glory and our joy, in the name of Jesus, Amen. As like I said, we're starting in Jonah, and as soon as I said Jonah, what was the first thing that came to mind? Fish. Big fish, a whale, right? Everyone's thinking big fish. If you're if you got young kids, you're probably maybe thinking of the Veggie Tales version or something like that. That's what people think of when they think of the book of Jonah. Kids love the story. Scholars are fascinated by the book. It's not an understatement to say this is a masterpiece of ancient literature. We can kind of have this chronological snobbery where we think like these, these people that lived way back when were just primitive and, and less intelligent. You read books like Jonah and you realize that is just arrogant. Jonah it's beautiful. It's not an exaggeration to say it's a classic. It's one of those pieces of literature that's known far and wide. It's one of the most recognized stories, one of the most recognized historical things ever penned. The author, who we're not sure who it is, brilliantly weaves satire and poetry and intentional structure and humor and hyperbole and irony all into this narrative. It's beautifully simple on the one hand. Kids love it, right? Put Case to bed. One of the stories he requests often, tell me about Jonah. right? Usually he wants me to add some dragon that comes after the whale. <laughs> a man disobeys God, he gets swallowed by a fish as punishment, and then he's forced to go and preach to a people he doesn't love. But like any classic... It also requires a longer gaze. More than one glance to glean the deep meaning of this text. So we're going to read Jonah slowly and carefully and practically, because it's more than just a story. It's a lesson. It's meant to instruct us. It's meant to change us. God has redempted effects, things He means to do to our hearts, through this passage. So it's not just a lesson about a big fish. The main character of Jonah isn't the fish. The main character isn't Jonah. It's not about a big fish. It's about a big God. It's about the biggest God. It's heavy with the enormity of God's mercy and His mission. Those are the major themes we're going to see as we go through through this letter, it's going to come to the forefront again and again, all the different ways that God surprises us with His mercy, the way He shows us His compassion where we least expect it, and doing that the whole while showing us that His heart beats with an evangelistic fervor. It's only four chapters long, so it's going to be a four-part series. We're going to take it one chapter at a time and let that set our pace, this is God's book it's his word he wants us to learn from jonah and by that i mean he doesn't want us over the course of this four weeks to sit in judgment of jonah because jonah does some really stupid things and it's really easy to sit in judgment of him he wants us to see jonah and see ourselves he wants us to weigh our own hearts He wants us to do exactly what James instructed us to do in the last series. What did James say, remember? What's the word like? It's like a mirror. Hold it up. And when we see in God's Word, when we read in God's Word, if we're reading correctly, if the Spirit grants us eyes to see, it becomes a mirror and we see ourselves accurately. That's what God wants to happen in this series. Not that we can walk away with with more knowledge about who Jonah was, but that as we see Jonah in clarity, as we see the Ninevites and the sailors and this fish, and especially this God with clarity, that we see ourselves with more clarity. That we live differently. That we love more deeply that we're filled with greater compassion. So, with that said, we're going to jump in. I want to whet our appetites first with a quote. Classic of ancient literature paired with a quote from modern literature. This is what Herman Melville says in Moby Dick, about Jonah. Shipmates. This book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the Scriptures. That's a great description, right? Yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound. What a pregnant lesson to us is this prophet. What a noble this is, that canticle in the fish's belly. How billow-like and boisterously grand. Hopefully that whets your appetite. Not just for Jonah, but for Moby Dick. (laughs) You see why that's a classic as well. Here's what we're going to see in Act 1 of a four-act play. Act one this morning, we're gonna see that God extends unlikely mercy to unlikely people in unlikely ways. God extends compassion, that this mighty mercy that's that's the title of the series to unlikely people in unlikely ways. So first, scene one. What we're gonna do we're not gonna read through the whole text on the front, end. we're gonna let the story develop, let the climax build. So scene one, we see Jonah on the run. Jonah running. Look with me now at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The author of the book immediately throws us into the action, doesn't he? There is like hardly any introduction. Immediately we see the divine calling placed upon Jonah. God's word has come to Jonah. And that, even in and of itself, the way it's structured, tells us a little bit about who Jonah is. Jonah is a prophet. He's one who receives revelation from God. But it's not just for himself. The reason a prophet receives that revelation is because he becomes a mouthpiece for God to a people that God sends him, to speak for God, to speak out God's revelation to that people. Sometimes to encourage them, them. sometimes to remind them of the promises, sometimes to warn them, to call them to repent. That's what's happening here. We don't have hardly any biographical information about who Jonah is, except for the fact that he's clearly a prophet, and he's a son to Amittai but that little bit actually shows us another portion of scripture that mentions him. In 2 Kings 14 we also read about Jonah, the same Jonah. Matches up in terms of the time periods. He's a prophet we find out to Israel, specifically to Israel, to God's people in a time when his people weren't unified. This is this is post David and Solomon so the kingdom has been divided, right? And in the south you have Judah. And in the north, you have the Israelites. Jonah is a prophet to the northern kingdom, to Israel. And 2 Kings 14 tells us he's a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II. And that setting is significant. It's important. Jonah is a prophet during a time when God's people and God's king are in rebellion. So what would you expect if you're a prophet and you're living in that time? That's your job description, right? You're you're God's mouthpiece. And the kingdom is living in syncretism. You're worshiping false gods in addition to the true God. And your king is described in that book as one who does evil in the sight of the Lord. What do you think your job description is going to be? Probably not real pleasant, right? And we're already surprised by God's unlikely mercy. In 2 Kings 14, we read that even despite the disobedience... God sends Jonah with a message of hope. He's going to extend Israel's borders. He's going to grant them a period of peace. In spite of the fact that just prior to this promise, the author of Kings tells us the king and his kingdom are evil. So here in the 8th century B.C., 700 odd years before Jesus arrives, Jonah gets the call. The sweet gig. Prophets rarely get to go before the king, especially a bad king, and say good things. He's actually right on the, the tail end of Elijah and Elisha. Some people actually think he's a disciple of Elisha. If that kind of gives you a context of where Jonah falls within the storyline. He gets to go in front of Jeroboam II, this, this evil man, and he gets to proclaim hope to God's people. That never happens to the prophet. You read, like, Amos and and Hosea. Hosea has to to marry an unfaithful woman to demonstrate the unfaithfulness of Israel. A heartbreaking calling. Jonah gets a cherry gig, man. He gets to go before the king, and you could just kind of sense probably the tension in that room. Like, great. Another one of those prophets. And he starts prophesying, and the king's ears perk up, and... People start clapping. Yeah, Jonah! Jonah's the man! We love Jonah! Jonah, you are welcome anytime. You got a word for me? You come right in, man. I would love to hear it. Well, let's make like tablets and send these out to the four corners. This is a great PR for Jeroboam's reign. And that's the first whisper of God's amazing mercy. His king is despising him as people are forgetting him and he sends a prophet to preach hope the reason Jonah preaches hope we see in verse 2 we're about to see is that there's this thing called assyria their neighbors to the north specifically a city called nineveh and that's where our story gets interesting verse 2 it says god says to jonah arise Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Screeching halt to the cherry gig, right? It's been really fun these last few years. Walking into Jeroboam's throne room and be the man, get the red carpet treatment, eat at his table, drink the king's wine. Now Jonah gets a much harder calling. Nineveh, is the military center of Assyria. Assyria is the superpower of the ancient Near Eastern world at this time. And they're literally right... They're the northern neighbor of Israel. So it's not just that Assyria is gobbling up nations through this kind of militaristic conquest. They've been gobbling and gobbling, and now they are sitting right at Israel's doorstep. Prior to this, Israel is actually a vassal to Assyria. So they've got to pay tribute to this foreign king and even pay tribute to the foreign gods he's associated with. It's this humiliating thing. Well, there's been a famine in Assyria. There's political intrigue going on in Nineveh. And so Assyria has has regressed just slightly for just a short period. They're going to come back on the scene with even more power shortly. But right now, they've pulled back. And now God says to Jonah, as all of Israel is celebrating the fact that Nineveh is stumbling, I want you to go to those people. And I want you to call them to repent. I want you to take a trip, a 600-mile journey, and I want you to go to the heart of the evil empire. Not New York Yankees evil. Despicably, tyrannically, horribly evil. I want you to go to the home of that king, to the epicenter of the wickedness that's happening in ancient Sin City. I want you to call out to them. Now, to get the gravity of this, I'm going to read an inscription. One of the kings of Assyria, they, they, they found actually in excavating Nineveh, and just for kind of geographical insight, if you're just sort of an input nerd like me, Assyria is in modern-day Iraq, in the northern part. So Mosul, that part of Iraq. Sometimes we hear about it in the news with the war in Iraq recently. That's where Nineveh is located, around that area. Well, Nineveh, when they've... Archeologically, dug it up. They found all sorts of rich information about the people and the Assyrians, and all these inscriptions, these royal inscriptions that the kings had made, that describe just the nature of the reign. So, we're going to read one of these in a second. That's written by the king, and it's just this gloating, gloating inscription. But it gives you a taste of why Israel and why Jonah would be so anti-Assyria. That's what it says. This is what the inscription said. I erected a pile in front of my enemy's gate. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me, in case you didn't know what flaying was, and draped their skins over the pile. Some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. Now I placed on stakes around about the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. I slashed the flesh of the eunuchs and of the royal eunuchs who were guilty. I brought Baba, the foreign king, to Nineveh, flayed him, and draped his skin over the wall of Nineveh. Not really the ideal neighbor. Maybe good fences do make good neighbors, right? You get a sense for how much Jonah and Israel loathe this city how much they fear it and God says arise go to that city of depravity and cry out against them now if I'm honest I have a hard time sharing the gospel with my barista (laughs) that's a pretty non-threatening environment right So let's have a little empathy for Jonah and the fact that he's being called to go 600 miles. Does he even have a camel? I don't know. He's got to go 600 miles to this city in a hostile environment and declare before this powerful king who has a history of stripping people of their skin and tell him that a foreign god says his gods are wrong, this foreign god of a people who he's previously conquered, and this foreign god is saying, repent of your evil. That's a hard calling. And Jonah rejects it. He hears that calling. He realizes the sweet days of saying sweet things to the evil king of Israel are over. And instead of going to Nineveh, going east, he flees to Joppa. He goes west. And his rejection is multi layered. On the one hand, He knows it's hazardous, right? You're going to go in front of this guy and he skins people. You're going to go with oracles from another god. But he also knows, and we see later in chapter 4, Nineveh might repent. And there we see the duplicitous, depraved part of Jonah's heart. Jonah is xenophobic. He doesn't like other people. He doesn't like non-Hebrews, non-Israelites. He's ultra-nationalistic. He's concerned about Israel's glory much more than he is God's glory. So he hates Assyria. He wants them to be destroyed. And he loathes the assignment because he knows God is merciful and God is forgiving. He loves his ethnic identity more than his religious identity. And so Jonah runs. It says specifically, he hears the word of God and he turns and flees, which tells us part of what he's running from is God's word. He hears God's word and he turns and runs in the opposite direction. And if you're a prophet, what's your job? It's to listen to God's word and relay that word, right? So if you're running from God's word, what you're doing is running from your calling. It's running from exactly what God has gifted you and called you up to do. Well, Jonah rejects it. His goal is Tarshish. Now, it's not totally clear where Tarshish is. Most scholars, a lot of scholars, think it's probably somewhere in modern-day Spain. So if you can imagine, he's rejecting going to Nineveh, to the desert, so he can go hang out in the Mediterranean. He goes west. He hightails it for Joppa. It's a port city on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean that's outside of Jewish control. So Jonah seems to think, if I go to Joppa, I'll be outside of God's control. He hops a ship for Tarshish because, as the book tells us twice, Jonah thinks he can flee God's presence. He wants to flee God's control and his sovereignty and his rule. And when you read it, and especially as the drama unfolds, it's just almost comical. Because I was thinking, of like, what do you compare it to? It's almost like the old Warner Brothers cartoons and Wiley e. Coyote. It's just comical, hysterical, pathetic attempts to capture the Roadrunner. That's what Jonah's sort of doing. Anvils are dropping on his head, left and right, because he's trying to flee the presence of an omnipresent being. So he jumps in a ship. He heads out for Tarshish. He rejects God's sovereignty. He thinks he will flee from a God who's everywhere. And he, he knows this, right? He's God's prophet. He knows God's word. And so he's probably memorized Psalm 139.7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The next verse goes on to say, if I go to the depths of the sea, you know who's there? God is there. Jonah knows that. That Psalm also underscores something else. The point of saying God's everywhere isn't like everywhere you go, the boogeyman's still there, and you just—it's this sense that no, God is everywhere, and if you are part of God's people, His presence extends to the ends of the earth. His blessing extends to you, to the end of the earth. So think about what Jonah's doing. In his rebellion, he flees the very grace that sustains his existence. He's trying to flee because he so hates the Assyrians from a place of blessing to a place of judgment. That is utter stupidity. It's futile. It's completely irrational. It's the very definition of sin. God's sovereign mercy is at odds with Jonah's selfish desires. So Jonah does the opposite of what God instructs. Want a simple definition of sin? That's what it is. To do the opposite of God of what God's word commands. Jonah rebels, he defies God, he rejects God's path and God's plan. And that should hit close to home. Not a single one of us I make an assumption here, but I'm pretty confident it's accurate, have ever been called to Nineveh. But we've all fled God's path. We've all turned a deaf ear to his word. We've all said, like Jonah, my way is better than God's way. We defy God's word at numerous points if we're honest with ourselves. And just like Jonah, fleeing the presence of an omnipresent God, our sin is irrational, and our sin is futile, and our sin is defiant. We need to keep this in mind as we continue to watch Jonah. It's not look at him, it's gaze at myself in the mirror of Jonah. It's a correction and a reminder. Our hearts are prone in similar ways. God's word says, be generous. And we hold back. God's word says, be honest. Be a truth teller. And we lie. Or we hold back the truth and convince ourselves it's not lying. God's word says love your neighbor as yourself. And we struggle to love our spouse as ourself. God's word says be compassionate, be merciful, be gracious, be forgiving as I, your God, am these things. And we're more tempted towards anger selfishness. God's Word says, live for My glory. And we construct the plans of our lives to build our own glory. It's the end of scene one. Scene one, Jonah is on the run. Scene two, God starts His pursuit. Look at verse four. "'But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, "'and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, "'so that the ship threatened to break up. "'Then the mariners were afraid, "'and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship "'into the sea to lighten it for them. "'But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship "'and lain down and was fast asleep. "'So the captain came to him and said, "'What do you mean, you sleeper? "'Arise! Call out to your God!' Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The silliness of Jonah's attempts to flee God's sovereign jurisdiction are immediately apparent. The order of the Hebrew words shows us that the author is making a point. It's not ordered how we would normally expect them to be. It highlights the fact that God, immediately in verse 4, is counteracting Jonah's every move. The way the word order is actually reversed, God's name is placed at the front. To show us in a very real sense, it's not even like God is pursuing Jonah. God is already one step ahead of Jonah. God hurls a storm, it says. He throws a mighty tempest at the ship. When I was reading this and I was looking at it, and and the word hurl comes up several points in chapter 1. This is the first instance of God hurling. I did this picture of of Nolan Ryan on the mound. This guy just hurling a 102-mile-an-hour fastball. God is on the mound, and Jonah is arrogantly crowding the plate. And so God steps up, he takes the ball, he reaches back and throws a million-mile-an-hour fastball straight at Jonah's head. You get your tail in the dirt don't think you're going to thwart my ideas. That's what's happening here. A four-seam fastball of fury and wind and waves is directed right at Jonah. The storm is an extension of God's anger against this fleeing prophet's disobedience. There is no doubt when you read Jonah 1 about where that storm is coming from. That storm is coming from God. He is controlling the waves. He is blowing the wind. The rain that is beating that deck is coming from heaven at His bidding. The boat actually gets personified in the drama. It actually actually takes on human characteristics. It literally says, the ship expected itself to crack up. Like the ship becomes a living character. This storm is so crazy. Like the ship is crying out. It's so bad the mariners these salty sea dogs of Joppa, are quaking on the deck. You ever seen the show Deadliest Catch? Got some characters in that show, right? In general, seafaring men tend to be full of character, shall we say. But you watch that show and you watch what these guys do. In freezing cold water, in the Bering Strait Sea... With waves just tossing the deck. And I'm like, I wouldn't want to be on that boat, much less on the deck. And they're just going around business as usual, right? Men who know the sea aren't typically scared by the sea. But what's happening here is so freakish, this fastball is coming so fast, that these seasoned men of the sea are scared. They are quaking. They're cowering in fear. They're crying out to their non-gods. Sailors don't really have a reputation as being the most God-fearing religious people in the world. So the fact that it's to the point where they're crying out to their gods says how scared they are. The crew are polytheists, so they're worshiping a pantheon of gods. You've probably got members of the crew that worship all sorts of different gods. And the whole point of that is, hey, let's just make sure we cover all of our bases. If we're, if we're praying and sacrificing to all these gods, then it's like, put a little money on black, a little money on red, and a little bit on 27. That's what they're doing. They're trying to cover all their bets and all their bases. They're, they're crying out to every god they can think of. And that reminds us, they're not innocent bystanders. These men aren't the hapless victims of Jonah's rebellion. They're idolaters. They worship things they've made with their own hands, crafted in their own image, as if they are the true and living God. The storm gets so bad, they start chucking their cargo overboard. It's not like they're throwing their Samsonite luggage overboard. That's not what's happening. They need to lighten the load so that they don't just sink immediately as the water is taken on. But the cargo they're throwing overboard, that's their livelihood. You you can kind of picture it as if if you're traveling in a boat and you had briefcases just full of $100 bills. And the storm gets so bad that you're taking those briefcases and throwing them overboard because you realize... I ain't taking this $10 million with me. If I go to the bottom of this, I'm dead. And so they're throwing their livelihood. They're throwing money over the edge. They're freaking out. And while the ship threatens to crack up and the sailors cry out, where's Jonah? Jonah is in the hull of the boat, fast asleep. The Septuagint adds commentary at this point. The Septuagint actually adds something that implies he's not just sleeping, he's snoring. Like, he's in the bottom of the boat, sawn down logs. The storm's raging, and as it rages louder, Jonah snores all the more loudly. The waves start to rise, and the way the Hebrew is structured, it kind of seems to imply that's when he goes down. As the wind first starts to pick up, Jonah seems to have an inkling. I might be running from God's presence but I also know who God is. So let's continue in the irrationality of my sin, and I'll go hide in the hull of the boat. The God who's everywhere, who sees everything, who controls the wind and is throwing a storm at us, if I go hide in the bottom of the boat and go to sleep, it'll be like it's not happening, right? So he goes into the bottom and descends into slumber. And it's not the first descent in the story, is it? The English picks up what's happening in the Hebrew in a really great way. The story tells us that Jonah went down to Joppa. It says he went down to the ship. It says he's gone down into the hold, and he's gone down into a deep sleep. Joseph's slumber is a metaphor for the effects of his rebellion on his soul. He's going down. In his sin, he's found himself in ever deepening deception until the point that he is snoring so loudly he's oblivious to his own impending doom. John Owen gives an appropriate synopsis. The custom of sinning takes away the sense of it. The course of the world takes away the shame of it. As Jonah, as we get deeper in our rebellion, it seems less rebellious. The first lie to the boss is kinda hard, and you're worried you're gonna get caught. What the twentieth lie? I don't I don't even know that I was dishonest. I think I just didn't communicate quite as clearly as I should have. Jonah has become deaf to his doom. He's numb to the wickedness of his actions. His sin has done what sin does. It has progressed. It has spread. It has metastasized. It has deceived him. But Jonah's below-deck snooze also underscores that he hates even the men who are directing this ship to help him flee God. He won't go to Nineveh. And he won't even fraternize with these foreign sailors. He might be sleeping below decks, but they are below him. He sleeps while they fight for their lives. And the captain's frustration boils over when he finally finds Jonah. Can you just imagine I'm like looking around like, Where's that dude we picked up in Joppa? Like, help him. Have him come and grab some lines. Pick up an oar. Where's he at? Find him. Sleep in the hold." And essentially the captain says, What is the matter with you? What is your malfunction? Like, what is going on? We're we're about to die. You're sleeping down here, man. And he says something very poignant. He says, arise, call out to your God. How does the word of the Lord first come to Jonah? Arise, go to Nineveh. I think God is speaking through this pagan captain. Arise, Jonah, I'm coming for you. Cry out to me recognize you are in trouble and it's at my hand. You will not flee my presence. You will not flee the borders of my sovereignty. Fascinating to listen to. We see it. And it leads us into the climax. So Jonah has run. God has pursued. And now, in the climax, we see through a series of events a great, unlikely, unexpected display of God's mercy. He relents. Follow from verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account. This evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord as he had told them. So they cast lots, which in the ancient world is just a way that you kind of discern God's will. People of Israel would do it at times as well. God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over where the lot falls, right? They cast lots. The lot falls on Jonah. Where before, interestingly, the captain says, Arise! Call to your God! What does it say Jonah does when he says that? It doesn't say he does anything. He just kind of, apparently, is non-responsive still refusing to pray to his God. So they cast lots. Boom, it falls on Jonah. He realizes I'm caught red-handed. And his response is a key passage in the book. He makes a creedal statement. He gives this very orthodox answer. But it's interesting how he does it. How does he start? He starts by saying, I'm a Hebrew. That's the way an Israelite would refer to themselves in the presence of foreigners get the sense of what's going on still in Jonah's heart? I am not like you. I am a Hebrew. It's fascinating. In the midst of his rebellion, he is fleeing from God. He's fleeing from his calling. He's fleeing from his identity. Even as he sits there with these foreigners in the middle of a storm, and he still wants to make clear, as much as I'm running from my God and running from my identity, I'm still not like you. And the order in the Hebrew draws all the attention to the Lord. Literally, it reads, The Lord, the God of heaven, I fear, who made the sea and the dry land. It's a it's loaded statement. He uses a literary device called Amirism, where you take two opposites and you kind of compare them to show like the totality of your statement. So if somebody says, I am working day and night, what's their, what's their implication? I am working all the time. I am working around the clock. What's Jonah say? You don't want to know who my God is? My God is the God of the sea and the dry land. Only my God is the creator and the ruler of all. Implication yeah, the lot landed on me, and this storm ain't random. The howling wind and the dark sea is the bidding of God, my God. And when they hear what Jonah says about his God, they become terrified. Literally, the author says, this is a thing that Hebrew authors do a lot. They feared a great fear. You get the sense of how scared they are? What makes God so terrifying is that, unlike their deities, they've got deities like there's like sea deities and like rain deities and land deities, but all those deities are conscripted to a certain area. That's a fertility deity. That fertility deity doesn't have anything to do with war. Jonah's deity, the true God, oversees it all. And they realize it. When they hear what's happened, their fear intensifies. Jonah's God has universal sovereignty and the power to exact justice and punishment wherever he chooses. And you can almost kind of picture them turning to the captain. Why did you let this idiot in our boat? What were you thinking? The response says it all to Jonah. What have you done? It's a rebuke. Jonah apparently tells them more of the details of what he's done than we get in the text. Notice the response of the sailors. This This is helpful. They hear the details that Jonah is fleeing from this God, a God they've never really even heard about before. And the question, as God assaults him in the storm, isn't, Why is your God doing this? How can your God do this to us? They're not questioning God. They're questioning his dolt of a prophet. They grasp, and this is key to Jonah, the gravity of God's justice. If this God is who Jonah says he is, the God of the sea and the dry land, the sovereign one over all the universe, then you don't trifle with his justice. He has sovereignty over everything. He can do as He pleases, which we'll hear later on. The mighty mercy of God that we see again and again and again in this book is not meant to diminish God's justice. It's not meant to diminish His righteousness. It's not like the mercy of a parent who's just really actually not a good parent, and they just really don't like punishing their kids, so they kind of let their kids get away with mercy with everything, and they convince themselves, it's just because I'm compassionate. I just love them so much. That's not the image of God you should have in Jonah. The sailor's response shows they're mad at Jonah. Incredulous that Jonah, the only one who knows who this God is, could be flippant towards him. Here's the final part of the passage. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The way the story goes, it's like God is testifying to the truth of Jonah's words. The more Jonah says about the nature of God and the nature of His power, the more the sea rages. My God is over everything. Boom! Boom! You know I am! He's telling them, be afraid. Listen to the words of this prophet. He may be stupid, but my words are in his mouth. He's telling the truth right now. And it's pounding the boat. The sea boils with anger. The Creator, God, has been wronged. And creation has taken up his anger. Jonah knows he's responsible. Tells him, throw me into the sea. You'll be okay. Jonah's been an arrogant jerk up to this point, right? Sleeping in the bottom of the boat. Arrogantly telling him I'm a Hebrew. Like, you're not a Hebrew. This is my God. I'm wronged him. You're going to die because I've wronged him. At this point, if the guy says, just throw me in the water, wouldn't you be like, yeah, already planning on it. We didn't need your help with that, man. If you look over there, we've already set up the plank. There's going to be a swift kick in the butt to get you off of it. Instead, the sailors try to save Jonah's guilty neck. It's a remarkable contrast, isn't it? Jonah won't go to Nineveh to deliver God's word to a foreign people. And now he finds himself with a group of foreigners on the brink of destruction. And the ones who most closely resemble the mercy of God are the idol worshippers. But row as they might, their efforts are futile. It's a theme in the book. It's actually the way that the author uses the language in a certain verb form. Every time in the same verb form humans do something, it falls on its face. It doesn't work. Every time in the same verb form God does something, success. Underscoring. Human efforts are futile if they go against the will of God. It happens here. They row and row and row with all their might. And they're confronted with God's own power. And when it happens, there's an amazing turn of events. For the first time in the story, the sailors cry out. And they call God by His name. So they've been crying out before, right? Praying to fake gods that they've made up. Now they stop praying to their gods and they pray to the true God and they pray to God in His covenant name. The climax of chapter 1 is heard in the conclusion of their prayer. You, Yahweh, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. We get it. You are the real God and you get to do whatever you want. Three places in the entire Old Testament where that phrase is used. We're going to look at two of them because one of them is kind of repetitive. Isaiah forty you'll, you'll hear the similarities. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god? Then they fall down and worship? Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all that I please. Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that Yahweh the Lord is great, that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever Yahweh the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven... And on earth, in the seas, and all the deeps. here it just happened? The sailors got converted. The confrontation of chapter 1 isn't just between Jonah and God. It's between the sailors and their fake gods, their non-gods, their false gods, and the true and living God. The author wants us to hear the significance of the surrender. They are broken. On the pitching deck, they come face to face with God in all of his awesome aseity, in all of his perfect and absolute independence. And they recognize it and they see it. He is God. Certainly there is no other. He is God and he does all that he pleases. And so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. First, God hurls the four fastball of the storm, then they futilely hurl their cargo. And now finally, they hurl God's prophet back to him. They toss him back in. Jonah's words in verse 12 are crucial. He instructs them, right? This is what you have to do. You have to pick me up. Hurl me. It's loaded language. Pick me up is used a lot of other places in the Old Testament to talk about bearing guilt. Not just pick up, but like you bear it. Jonah sees himself as a sin offering human sacrifice for the lives of the sailors. So when he goes overboard, his sin guilt goes with him. Calvin actually calls Jonah's sacrifice expiation. Jonah becomes the scapegoat. Send the scapegoat out of the camp and the sin leaves with it. Throw Jonah over the side and the sin goes with him. And when it happens, the storm calms. Now at this point, the sailors could be like, oh, phew. Off the hook. You see the genuineness of their conversion. They get rid of Jonah and the sea calms down. They're good to go. They're not going to die. They can return to business as usual. They can pick up their lives. They can go back to Joppa. They can tell this crazy story. They can go make some more sacrifices to their old gods. Verse 16 says, Then the storm is gone. The men feared Yahweh the Lord exceedingly. They feared a great fear again. They offered a sacrifice. They made vows. There's a progression of fear for the sailors. A great fear gives rise to an intense fear as the storm increases. They fear a great fear. As the waves come, that fear grows. When the waves stop, the fear doesn't cease. It doesn't disappear. It changes from a fear of terror to a fear of reverence and awe and worship. This is the true God. and His own prophet might not have worshipped him. But we will. The whole situation is ripe with irony. Jonah attempts to flee God's presence. And by fleeing God's presence, he unwittingly brings foreigners into relationship with him. To this point in the story, nothing has happened according to Jonah's plan. And everything, is inescapably gone according to God's mission. God's pursuit of Jonah is in itself the very activity of mercy. The storm is a severe mercy from God. It's a reminder of the negative consequences of our sin. Not always, but sometimes, the hardship in life is of our own doing. your marriage is broken because you're committing adultery you know why that brokenness is hitting you. If you're in debt $25,000 up to your ears you can't get out you're losing your home you know why you're losing the home. But it's incredible as we read it even though it's a severe mercy, even though God is using the storm as a consequence of sin, the whole point of the storm is not to destroy Jonah. It's to turn him back. This isn't the story of an angry deity. It's the story of a restorative father. Why are you doing this, Jonah? Why would you run from My presence? Come back to me. And if I have to smack you in the gut with the storm of all storms to get your attention, then I will do it. The storm itself is salvation through judgment. The sea rages at God's command. It bears witness against Jonah's evil. And those waves aren't meant to destroy him. They're meant to save Jonah from himself. as a byproduct in God's unsearchable wisdom. He designs it that those waves will also save a bunch of foreign sailors. There's no randomness to them being there. I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He's got a book called Man Overboard on the book of Jonah. He says this, The best subtitle for Jonah might be evangelism and the sovereignty of God. Because it is those two biblical emphases which come to the fore throughout its pages. Jonah is forced to learn in his flight from God that God is sovereign. He rules over all things. He also learned that the pulse beat of God's heart has an evangelistic rhythm. He loves men and women and he will pursue them with his love in order to bring them to repentance and faith. Think about the nature of this conversion with the sailors. A cowardly prophet is proclaiming God's word to them. They know this guy is disobeying God's own word to him. So you want to talk about a time when your witness is totally out of step with your life? It's Jonah, right? You should be holy. Aren't you an alcoholic? Well, yeah, but I mean, God really values it. That's what's happening here. And they still hear it, and God still uses it to pierce their hearts. A storm of righteous mercy is god's subplot he can pursue jonah in any way he wants to right he could break jonah's leg on the way to joppa and jonah's just sitting on the side of the road stuck he could put a hole in the boat 10 miles off from shore and it just sinks right there and jonah just swims back god in his sovereignty in his wisdom designs you know how i'm gonna get jonah you know how i'm gonna bring him back I'm going to hurl the mother of all storms because I know all those foreign sailors, they worship gods of the sea. And when I hurl this storm, they will see and they will know and they will break and they will worship. The mercy is thick. Jonah's anti-missionary flight from Nineveh ironically results in the conversion of non-Israelites. The gospel is in Jonah. He goes over the side of the boat as a sacrifice for sin. Jonah whispers about the coming of Jesus. This brief plot echoes the great story of the Bible. Jonah goes overboard, but can Jonah actually take away sin? No. He's guilty. And he's going overboard. It's not like these sailors are innocent. They've just been praying to the wrong God at the start of the story, right? This happens All of this to echo and preview and prepare us for the way of Jesus. God relents and forgives the sailor. He pursues a runaway prophet. He extends unexpected mercy in this verse, in this passage, solely because Jesus is superior to Jonah. Compare Jonah the prophet to Jesus the prophet. Jonah flees his hard calling. Jesus embraces it. Jonah refuses to leave his sweet setup in the throne room of Jeroboam II to go to the throne room of a pagan king. Jesus leaves the glory of the right hand of the Father. Jonah doesn't want to go to the depravity of Nineveh, sin city. And the Son of God comes down into the muck of earth, the sinless one into the birthplace of sin. Jonah's behavior in the storm is strangely similar and shockingly dissimilar from Jesus in another storm we read about, right? The storm comes and they're both sleeping in the bottom of a boat. You ever think about that? They're both sleeping in the bottom of a boat while a storm's crashing and everybody else in the boat is freaked out. But Jonah slept the slumber of a man deep in sin that couldn't hear the mortal danger of the storm. Jesus slept the slumber of a man so deep in faith that God was in control of every wave that he doesn't stir. Jonah sleeps because he's fled God's will. Jesus sleeps because he is completely at peace with the Father's will. Jonah goes to his death, and he's a prophet. He's being sent to Nineveh to do what? Cry out against them, and he knows, he says in verse 4, if I do it, they're going to repent. He's a prophet. He knows. You know what happens when God comes against you in judgment? You repent! You repent! You admit you are wrong. You turn back. There's probably still going to be some consequences. But God is a forgiving God. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's mighty in extending compassion and forgiveness in ways we're not. Jonah knows that. When the storm is raging, does he say, You know what we got to do, guys? we got to pray and repent. No. Throw me over the side. I'd rather die in the sea to stop this storm than actually admit to God that I hate unbelievers and I hate foreigners. On the other hand, Jesus goes to his death unable to repent for a far different reason. There's nothing to repent of. He goes because unlike Jonah... He perfectly resembles the Father's compassionate mercy for people still in darkness. Jonah wants to die as a last ditch attempt to assure that Nineveh never hears the good news. You know what happens when Jesus dies? His death purchases repentance. His blood is the power of God to purchase regeneration and conversion, and belief, and faith for God's people. I have done nothing wrong. And I will be crushed as the innocent one to make the guilty partakers of my glory. Every single expression of God's mighty mercy in this story in chapter 1 and from this point forward is anchored in Jesus Jonah's sacrifice only matters because God views it through the lens of Christ's more perfect sacrifice. God sends a storm of mercy leading to repentance and not wrath leading to destruction. Only because there will be a day when Jesus hangs on a cross and propitiates, absorbs and deflects God's wrath. It's Jesus' death that actually purchases the repentance of of those sailors. Jonah dies in spite of it. So you go forward. Listen. See. We're about to see it immediately next week. The foreshadows of the Gospel are all over Jonah. God's mighty mercy extending blessing when He should extend destruction only makes sense Because Jesus is a better Jonah. Would you bow your heads?